The Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered the house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my brother, who are my mother, and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Would you join me as we pray for David? Living God, uh, in certain seasons, you have words of healing for us. And then in certain seasons, you have words that are challenging, words that uh, stretches us. And this morning, David is working with some challenging and challenging words and, and, and words that will stretch us. But we say yes and amen to both words that are of healing and words that challenge us. And so will you empower David with your spirit, uh, fill him with your wisdom and your joy and your power as he preaches. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I just want to start by saying thank you to all the worship ministers, including the choir, for such a thoughtful liturgy, um, it really prepares us well to, to delve into scripture. So thanks to everyone involved. Um, we're going to talk about family. We're going to talk about demon possession, uh, although all those kind of easy topics, right? Um, the, the concept of family has changed uh, over the last few years. And, and this is not the result of some political agenda in the last uh, 10 years or so. The, the, the concept of family has significantly changed uh, in the 20th century, or did change in the 20th century, and is still changing. Uh, most of the, for most of uh, humanist history, families function in a very different way than uh, from what they function like now. 
So just for instance, I will uh, share that, um, you know, how we decide what to study uh, is a personal decision usually, right? Uh, maybe in high school, somebody does a, a vocational test uh, with you or for you, and then they advise, an academic advisor or vocational advisor tells you what degree you should, uh, you should pursue. But when I was growing up in Bolivia, uh, we did that, so no, it was a culture in transition uh, in the 90s. We did that, and uh, I scored uh, high on two different areas, and I didn't know what to study because they, they were equally high, so that added to confusion. Uh, but once I started university, uh, I, I had decided to study communications. Once I started uh, university, I realized that... Uh, when I, when I was talking to my friends, that several of them had chosen the, career, the degrees uh, that they were studying because, well, they didn't choose actually. Their parents chose their degrees for them. And that was, that was the case in many families. My, my parents were a little bit more liberal, if you want, and they, the only thing that they didn't let me study was sociology because there was no money in that. So, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I want, that was one of my first choices. But um, uh, other than that, like they just let me choose, right? But for several of my friends, it was their parents who chose their um, the, the degree for them. Uh, so that that's that was completely normal. Uh, I don't know if that's normal in the culture you come from. Uh, or maybe even if you were raised here in Canada and, and, and belong to a certain uh, cultural or uh, ethnic group, but that's still, that might still be the case, right? So just to let you know, just to pay attention to how the concept of family and the dynamics of family have changed in the, in, in the last century. But let, let's get back to the text and talk a little bit about perceptions how we perceive reality, how we perceive others, and the kinds of claims that we make about other people. In the year 2001, four scientists, Pronin, Kruger, Savitsky, and Ross, published an article in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. In this article, after several experiments that they did on, on groups of people, so some of the uh, people that they did these tests on, they knew each other well, so they were friends, right? Some of them, they kind of knew each other well, not, not, not too much. Perhaps they had started to live as roommates because of college, that kind of stuff. And in some other cases, the people uh, tested, they didn't know each other, okay? So um, what they found out after all these tests um, that they performed is that we perceive our knowledge of others to be greater than other people's knowledge of us. Let me say that again. We perceive our knowledge of others to be greater than other people's knowledge of us. Does that make sense? So this is how it manifests, right? So this error, this mistake of perception uh, shows up in things like this. We perceive ourselves to be more to be complex and nuanced, but the other is easy to figure out. No, he's just an addict. 
he's, he's just a man, or she's just a woman, you know, he's just old, you know. Like we categorize them. We put our certainties on them, right? Or things like uh, we think and act as if we know our close friends better than they know us. We understand them better too, right, than they understand, um, than, than they understand us. But it's even more, uh, it, it's, it's more serious than that. We think the discrepancy between our self-knowledge, how much we know ourselves, and our friend's knowledge of us is bigger than the discrepancy between how well we know our roommates or our, you know, our, our friends and how well they know themselves, right? So we perceive ourselves more, uh, we think that we're more perceptive than the others, more perceptive about us and about them, right? In interpersonal interactions, we believe we find out more about the other people than other people find out about us. Okay, this mistake is called the illusion of asymmetric insight. Okay? The illusion of asymmetric insight. So again, we perceive, to summarize, we perceive our knowledge of others to be greater than other people's knowledge of us. Okay, I'm guilty of it, and so are you. Now, I'm not going to say that you're more guilty than me, because that, that would, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the truth is that we all make these kinds of mistakes in our interactions with people. Okay? The biblical passage that we have just read in the Gospel of Mark uh, shows a little bit of this dynamic. As you may recall from last week's sermon, in the Bible we have four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Each of the Gospels emphasizes something different about Jesus, and each one of the Gospels has a unique way of narrating, of telling the story about Jesus. This Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, is fast-paced. It's the sort of like action movie of the Gospels, okay? Uh, one of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately, 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 right? So Mark is like fast-paced. But you can't tell a story just all that fast-paced, right? So, um, anyhow, Mark does that a lot in this. Um, in, uh, let me give you some, some examples. In Mark 1.20, you read, And immediately Jesus called them, and they left uh, their father Zebedee uh, in the boat, and they hired servants and followed him. Verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 23, and immediately there was a, in, in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Verse 28, and immediately his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Okay, so it's fast-paced. Boom, boom, boom. Mark is very creative, however. He knows that you can't just go with immediates. Okay, immediately, immediately, immediately. Um, he does that, but on the other hand, Mark uses another technique to slow down the narrative, to let us appreciate what is happening here. And this technique is uh, called uh, sandwich, because that's how it works. He puts two, uh, no, one thing between two, two similar things uh, for us to pay attention to the details, to pay attention 
at the dynamic. So, for instance, look at verse 20, 21 in our passage that reads, Then Jesus entered, uh, entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So that's the top bun of the hum hamburger, okay? The top bun of the, of, the, of the sandwich. While verses 31 to 35, uh, you know, when, um, when it says, then... Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And, and you know, all that continues. These verses are the bottom bun, the bottom bread, piece of bread, okay, of the sandwich. But both, uh, both so both parts, the top and the bottom, feature Jesus' family. And they feature Jesus' family as someone as somewhat against him, okay, or unable to understand him, what he's on about. He's gone too far. He needs an intervention. In the middle, right? So the what goes in between the the two loaves of bread, I guess, uh, the accusation of the teachers of the law are like the avocado, you know, the, 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 the tomato, the meat, right, of this teaching sandwich that we have, okay? So you get the idea. That's Mark's technique of for telling a story. Even though he uses immediately, 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 he presents uh, episodes in a in sandwich, in a sandwich fashion. So let's, let's take a look and hopefully enjoy this, this sandwich that Mark prepared for us. So now that we know that Mark is slowing us down, uh, we know that he wants us to pay attention to what is going on in Jesus' life at this very moment. Let's focus first on the conflict between Jesus and the teachers of the law. Later, we'll talk about the conflict between Jesus and his family, okay? The very first thing uh, that the Gospel of Mark tells us about Jesus is that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. Okay, That's how Mark presents Jesus. Verse, uh, Mark 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. The word Messiah communicated the idea of liberation. Okay? There were several ways to understand this liberation in Jesus' time. Certainly, it had political dimensions, but it was also, uh, it had to do with spiritual liberation. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And this is important to understand when we read the many stories about Jesus casting out demons in the Gospel of Mark. Okay? So don't lose this Two realities about liberation when we read these stories. In Jewish eschatology, so that's the, the thinking about you know, what happens or when and how the, the end of time comes, right? Uh, in Jewish eschatology, the binding of Satan is a feature that, you know, that you see, that it's a sign of the end of times, okay? The claim that Mark is making 
with these many stories of Jesus casting out demons is that the end of time has arrived. Jesus' exorcisms are not just everyday events. They are a sign of the final overthrow of the power of Satan. Okay? They're a sign that Satan is being defeated. Freedom. And yet, the teachers of the law are accusing Jesus to be an agent of Satan. Being accused, uh, so, so he's liberating, right, uh, people from demons, and he's being accused of being an agent of the devil. That must have hurt. Has that ever happened to you? Being accused of uh, causing the trouble, the trouble, when in reality you were trying to help? I don't know if it's happened to you. Uh, it happened to me once in a very terrible way. Um, many, many years ago, I was meeting a friend of mine for coffee near a SkyTrain station, uh, in one of the SkyTrain stations. After we finished having coffee, uh, she told me that her parking permit, her parking ticket, was about to expire. So, uh, you know, we walked to her car uh, and discovered that the window, the side window, you know, the driver's side, uh, had been smashed. Uh, so my friend was pretty shaken by it, uh, as, you know, understandably, and uh, she wanted to go back to the coffee shop to feel safe, I guess. So uh, this is before cell phones, uh, okay? So it's hard to figure out what to do, to, who to call. You kind of need time to think about it. So as we're uh, there in the coffee shop, uh, just figuring out what to do, uh, my friend... Remember that the parking uh, permit, the, the parking ticket had expired. So um, she got stressed about it. I offered to go get a new parking slip, new parking ticket uh, for, for her while she stayed in the coffee shop. Okay? So I went back to the car. I purchased a, a parking ticket and I was, uh, went back to the car. Silly, right? Like, it's, there are bigger problems right now than the parking uh, time. But I wanted to be helpful, right? That, that, that was my intention. Uh, so I'm placing the, the parking, you know, uh, parking stub on the, on the dashboard and, or, of the car. And um, I feel someone hitting me hard and throwing me uh, onto the bushes, right, on, of the, the parking lot, and, and I felt hard, and I thought, the first thing I thought was that the person that had broken the window uh, had come back to, not to attack, I don't know, so I, 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 I was trying to understand what was happening. It took me a while to realize that it was the security guard who probably saw the broken, you know, the, the pieces of glass on the, on, on the ground, and uh, you know this guy, me, standing next to the car, and he just went and attacked me and threw me into this, uh, these bushes. So he had assumed that I had done this. I was covered in thorns. Uh, I was in a lot of pain. And I felt so much anger that moment when I realized that he was the security guard. 
I was not in the mood to tell a parable to the guy, like Jesus tells him. <laughs> no. um, you know, I, uh, I wanted to get up and go on, go on the attack, you know, like, you know, adrenaline. I, I felt I had been wrongly accused. I felt perhaps I'd been profiled, you know, uh, by this security, uh, security guard. And, uh, you know, also thinking, well, where was he when the actual, when the window got broken, right? Um, anyhow, I'm not exactly, I, I don't remember exactly how I managed to convince him that I was, I wasn't the thief or, you know, the one that had done the, this crime. Um, but, uh, I think I showed him the, the, the parking thing that I had bought. Uh, and, uh, he realized that he had made a mistake and, uh, but never really owned up to it, right? So anyhow, I just like, I, uh, uh, I, I it was terrible. I, I felt really, really awful uh, when that happened. So it feels wrong, uh, it feels bad to be accused of something when you're actually trying to help, okay? And, and in some cases, it can have really awful consequences for the person being accused. Um, Jesus had been driving out demons and healing people since chapter 1. Okay, Since the beginning of the story that Mark tells, Jesus is casting out demons. Why is it that in the eyes of the teachers of the law, those who were supposed to help people understand the Word of God, help people walk in the path of God, why is it that they were uh, blind to Jesus' identity and mission. Did they profile him as a nobody coming from uh, the unreputable region of Galilee? Uh, or maybe their rejection had to do with the fact that the first time that Jesus cast out a demon out of a man, that demon had been hiding in a synagogue where the teachers used to do their work? We don't know. Whatever the answer, these teachers of the law are sure of their accusations against Jesus. These teachers of the law are certain. They come to Jesus with their certainties. The Belzebul controversy demonstrates the increasing intensity and hostility from the teachers of the law, from the scribes, towards Jesus. And Jesus, our Lord, at this time when he's being accused, takes the time to explain and defend himself. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. It takes time. We need to slow down to understand what Jesus is saying and doing here. He's some, here is something really beautiful about Jesus. As he ex as he's explaining that it wouldn't make sense for Satan to oppose himself, he's telling the teachers of the law 
that the strong man, Satan, is for all purposes bound. The casting out of demons that Jesus performs reflects or anticipates the ultimate defeat of Satan. He's telling them good news. He's telling them that you no, know, the hopes of the people for liberation is actually happening. That's what's wonderful about Jesus. He tells good news even when he's being accused. What a wonderful name. What a wonderful Savior. I know that sometimes it doesn't feel like, that, like God is victorious in our lives. Sometimes fear, hatred, darkness, even death seem to surround us. We may still be misunderstood as, as individuals, as a community, mistreated. We may still be profiled, accused, and oppressed. Dissonance is in other people's uh, dissonance in other people's perception can hurt us. The certainties with which they see us can hurt us. But we also hurt ourselves by the distorted perception that we have of ourselves. It is in those moments that we need God's grace to see his victory and to experience his victory in our lives. Also, we need each other. We need each other as a community to remind us of Jesus' victory over darkness. What's even harder about the hostility and alienation experienced by Jesus is the failure of his own family to accept him. What feels really hurtful in this passage is that uh, the hostility from the family looks a lot like the hostility from the scribes. But there are differences, and we'll get to those. His family wants to get him into their custody. It's the verb to, to take control of him, to, to cage him, to arrest him. Okay? Well, is it tough love? Are they upset at Jesus' lifestyle? And what is motivating this? We don't know, but what we do know is that throughout the gospel, Jesus becomes more and more isolated as one group after another, steadily closer to home, deserts him. And this hurts most with family. You all know that infighting in the family hurts the most. We're really vulnerable about this. We wish our spouses could understand us. See our side of things. We wish we could understand our children. Some of us are good at winning arguments. Some of us are good at getting angry. Some of us are good at holding on to resentment. How can we keep good company when we don't know how to be good company? Family is tough. 
I wonder what Mary thought about all of this. In the Gospel of Luke, Mary seems to be a lot more in sync with Jesus' mission and identity than she does in the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't surprise me the difference in these accounts because sometimes I feel like I know my children like no one does. And sometimes I look at them and I think to myself, where do these people come from? You know, like, <laughs> what? How are they related to me? Um, family feels like a, uh, like family feels precarious and fragile. If the stories featuring families in the Old Testament show us something, it is that families always need grace. In today's passage, Jesus' family does not understand what he's doing. They want to seize him. They want to take control of him. And like I said, their reaction is similar to the reaction from the teachers of the law. The family think the family thinks that uh, he's crazy, and the scribes think that he's demon possessed. In Jesus's family, and this is why this is very very difficult, or even more difficult than it would be in our time. In Jesus's time, family was a much bigger deal than uh, what it became what in the 20th century than what family became in the 20th century in the Western world. Uh, in, the, in the Western world, in the 20th century, the model of the nuclear family became the norm. Okay, so the nuclear family is mom, dad, and a couple kids, and maybe a pet, right, in, in suburbia or some, something like that. So separated unit. Uh, and this was possible uh, because of several reasons, but one of the primary reasons why this was possible in the 20th century was that families could survive with one person's salary, right? Mostly the men, they were, they were the ones that worked out. But, that's, but that, that's a new thing, okay? That's not been the norm throughout humanity's history. We tend to forget that, but that's, that, thing, that model where you know, one salary is enough to cover uh, the spouse and, and the kids, that, that, that happened only for a few decades in the 20th century, okay? The rest of human history, Family does not look like that. In Jesus' time, family was understood as kinship. The extended family was the axis, the center of the social world. This is very different from the hyper-individualistic culture of the 21st century. Kinship is still the norm in many non-Western cultures. The extended family structure determines identity and vocational prospects. Remember what I told you that you know, my friends, it was their parents that decided what they were going to study. And, and it changed, so family changed so much that, for instance, for many, many centuries, it was the father's duty to teach the kids his craft. Right? So if you were a shoemaker, the kids will be shoemakers. Right? But now we don't teach them um, our craft, right? Like we, I, mean, I don't teach Sophia and Andres how to preach. 
I hope they become that, but like, it's just a different arrangement. Okay? Um, the extended family structure determines identity and vocational prospects, like I said. Kinship was the backbone of the very social order Jesus is trying to redefine here. As I told you before, Jesus' family had arrived at the conclusion that he had lost his mind and wanted to seize him. Jesus' actions are perplexing and confusing. Jesus' mother and brothers are not adversaries, however, like the scribes. Even if they don't understand, they don't get what he's on about. They're just operating under the family paradigm of their time. Okay? You can almost say that they're doing their duty. Right? They need to take, they need to make, do an intervention on Jesus. And this is important to notice because Jesus' response is not to draw a line between himself and his family, right? Separation between his, himself and his family in his response. He is actually doing, he's drawing a circle that includes other people as family. Do you get the difference? Not a line, not a boundary between me and my family that doesn't understand, but a bigger circle that makes family bigger. That's what Jesus is doing. Last week we talked about transformation. Last week we saw how Jesus can make wine out of water and that he can make disciples out of us. Jesus came to transform not only our hearts, our inner feelings, and our thoughts. When he comes to our lives, all areas of our lives are impacted and transformed. Our circle of friends is not determined by our social status, by our ethnic background, by our political stances. Our circle, our kinship, our family is defined by our belonging to Christ. That's what's radical about church. Jesus does not cancel our identities or cultures, but he renews them so that they may not treat others, especially the marginalized, as categories, so that we may not put them in boxes, we don't, we, so that we may not just assume that we know them. Instead, through the Spirit, we begin to treat others with an open mind and an open heart, the way we like to be treated. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is not about saying something so terrible at one moment that God will never forgive you. That's not what blaspheming against the Spirit is about. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is about treating others, uh, is about treating others, perhaps speaking about others in the way that the dominant culture treats and speaks about them, rather than acknowledging and seeing the work of the Spirit in that person, the work of the Spirit in our lives, rather than treating them the way Jesus treated wants to treat them, 
rather than treating them the way Jesus treats us. We are slow to understand each other. And we are slow to understand Jesus. But so was his family, right? When we don't understand what Jesus is doing, our impulse might be to put Jesus in a box. The way we put other people in a box. But he has redefined family for us and has given us his spirit to live reality in a different key as a family. So, let us open ourselves to the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, as he redefines what family means for us. Remember, he is about transformation, and he has bound the strong man. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.